And welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. I'm Ricky Gans, and tonight we're going to be talking about an eschatology of hope. Yes, that post mill. Uh, we're going to be talking about that here on tonight's program, episode number 589, 589. And, and our guest tonight is Pastor Edwin Ramirez. He is the pastor of Faith Bible Chapel. Uh, it's in New York there, and uh, he is a post-millennialist. So he is going to be on the program tonight uh, as we talk about this position of end times. So, Pastor, I know you've been on the program uh, before, but maybe for those who are tuning in for the first time and, and catching you, uh, maybe share a little bit about yourself with them, and uh, and then we'll kind of get into this. Yeah, man. So, Ricky, good to have you. Oh, good to have you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> I'm used to I'm used to doing the interviews. So, thank you, brother. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Uh, my name is Edwin Ramirez, as Ricky said, the pastor of a church, small church in Randolph, New York, Faith Bible Chapel. Uh, and I've been there for three years. I have uh, a wife and four children, married 15 years uh, this past mm -hmm. August. So, man, what a blessing. And I am a student. I actually just started seminary at uh, Birmingham Theological Seminary. So excited about that. And beside that, I YouTube. I am uh, the host of the Proverbial Life podcast. And yeah, besides studying, wrestling and playing with the kids, just have a good time, man. Yeah. And recently, you, I know you were just in a debate on eschatology at a church. And so kind of getting us started into this, <clears throat> because I watched that and I and I, I want to echo what was stated in the beginning of that. We're post-millennial. I'm post-millennial. You're post-millennial. Um, but there are brothers and sisters who hold different eschatological positions. Um, there are those who hold an amill position, those who hold a historic pre-mill position. And sadly, those who hold dispensational views, but right. <laughs> all in love. We love our dispensational brothers, Absolutely. but we do like to joke. Um, but uh, that is other positions within the body of Christ. We can disagree on these things, but ultimately we're, we're wanting to look at the scriptures and see where do the scriptures lead us. Right. Yes. Because that is ultimately the, the, the most important thing to be sola scriptura. We, we go where the scriptures lead and because of some of our, presuppositions, uh, we may tend to go towards a different eschatology than myself and Edwin here, but it's still within the body of Christ. And, and I can respect someone who's seeking to use the scriptures to justify their position. Um, yeah. and, and that's all we can really ask of anyone. So anything you'd like to say about that as well? Cause I know yeah, this can I, get heated sometimes with people. Absolutely, man. And, and, you know, I, I just came back from a, uh, a men's conference and, you know, for these kind of events, you're usually the only crazy post-millennialist, at least that's how they perceive you. And, uh, you know, you believe the world is going to be Christianized. And in these conversations, they were they were good. You know, we iron sharpening iron. We weren't screaming, but we were passionate about our positions. And yet we were able to break bread together and just enjoy each other's company and fellowship. So I think we, we definitely hold to a position and we should hold to it vigorously, but we shouldn't we should examine our hearts at all times, making sure that we're not allowing whatever we believe be the dividing line for fellowship unless there's a need to. And, and there are definitely points in which there are dividing lines in the faith. But mm -hmm. eschatology usually isn't that unless um, unless unless someone is a, for example, a full preterist. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the common denominator against uh, amongst all confessions is that they don't necessarily 
give a outright position. Some say, well, it's a millennial they promote. Some say it's post-millennial. But one thing we know for certain is that they do not promote full preterism. Mm -hmm. The idea that the whole of scriptures, uh, the prophecy of scripture have been fulfilled. And that includes the, the second and last return of Christ. None of the confessions of faith adhere to that because that is heretical. And so right. as long as you don't hold to that, uh, and probably Radical 2K, uh, Amil. If you don't hold to those two, then, then, then we can have really vigorous discussions that are worth having because iron sharpens iron, and that's good. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, and as some of the things that you mentioned there, I want to kind of define uh, eschatology. It's the study of last things, the study of the end times. Um, uh, it's, it was very popular. Actually, I just found out this week from a conversation with an atheist uh, they were saying that the rapture was supposed to happen and they were glad I was going to be out of here. <laughs> wow. But um, I didn't even know that somebody predicted a rapture this past week. I didn't, I didn't, that's wow. that goes to show how much I pay attention to some of the things that are out there. But um, some of these views, this eschatology, it's the study of last things, the study of the end time. Um, this views, you mentioned preterist. A preterist is one who uh, believes that there are scriptures that have been fulfilled in the past written at the time, they were looking for these things to be future, but then they had come to a point where these things are now. We look at them from 2,000 plus years later and say, no, these things have passed. They've taken place. Um, and as you mentioned, a full preterist or a hyper preterist is one that, uh, you know, takes there's there's not even going to be a second coming of Christ. Uh, and, and that is, as you mentioned, heretical. Uh, some of the other positions, the more, more popular position, these are these are the views in which lead one into their eschatological uh, position of their millennials. Uh, and so futurist position uh, would be one. And that's where they're looking at scriptures in Revelation and Matthew chapter 24 and Thessalonians. They're looking at these passages, Second Peter. Uh, they're looking at these things and saying, no, these are future. They're to come. They're to come. Right. And then you have the idealist approach, which uh, you'll find many amillennials take this because they symbolize, they spiritualize things. And, and I think we all do. I think what you'll find with these is, I think we all can say, yeah, as I'm a partial preterist, there are still future things that I'm looking forward to. Um, and there are things that are symbolic. And so for like the idealist uh, approach, there are things that are symbolic in scripture. Now, the historicist position is one also that would lead you into an end times position. And this is one that basically sees like you think of the the seven churches in revolution revelation not revolutions but revelation uh and they would see them and say these are periods of time and many would say well right now we're living in the laodicean age um and i don't think that's a biblical position to take but there are some uh in in the past that have held to this uh view that leads them into either a dispensational premill view a historic premill view uh, an amillennial view or a postmillennial view. And so that's just a little bit of, of um, uh, defining of some of these terms that would lead us into this positions that we, we hold. So that being said, uh, getting into this, because this is a big topic, one verse I did want to read uh, as we get started here, one that often comes up all the time at Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6, and, 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 and following. It says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so while that's a popular verse at Christmas time, um, I look at that as a post-millennialist and I say, yes, absolutely. It's going to be established forever. The governments are going to be on his shoulder and the increase of these governments, there's going to be no end to this. Um, Edwin, anything you would? Yeah, amen. And, th and this is what the prophets were anticipating. When Messiah came and he inaugurated his kingdom, he would do this. And we see this in passages like Matthew 12, where Satan, you know, he, he, he has, um, you know, bind, he binds the strong man, you know, one of the positions as a post-millennialist, we believe that Satan is bound for a thousand years and that thousand is a symbolic number. Um, and that doesn't mean that evil doesn't exist. It doesn't mean we don't go through any suffering and hardship in this life. Uh, we're called not to be uh, ignorant to his devices. We're to put on the full armor of God, you know, the, have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But Satan is bound in that he can no longer deceive the nations. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and this is what Jesus commissions his disciples to do is to go make disciples of the nations. So there's there's a there's a freedom of the gospel to go forward in a way that uh, prior in, in prior centuries was not the case. And so, yeah, passages like the one in Isaiah, there's uh, Zechariah. I mean, all of the prophets were anticipating mm -hmm. Messiah. They were they were looking and in and, and, and Christ, when he came, he he is getting the ball rolling, as it were. Right, but but it's really at his ascension when he goes to the sits at the the right hand of the Father and he sits on the throne where passages like uh, uh, Psalm two, right, mm. ask of me and I'll give you the nations. Uh, right, we have Daniel, you know, and and all these other passages where they're anticipating the rule of mm. Messiah. Uh, Psalm one ten one, right, First uh, uh, Corinthians fifteen. All these passages are talking about the rule of Christ. And him ruling with an, a, a rod of iron, right? Crushing mm -hmm. his enemies. And he's doing so by virtue of the gospel right. and the church. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's key there to, to understand there are objections to post-millennialism we're going to get into, but it is the gospel that goes forth and changes hearts. Yes. And, and I think all of us, regardless of whatever eschatological position or view that one holds, believes that the gospel... Effect, or brings about change in the heart of an individual, and that change change brings about life transformation, and that life transformation should lead to something in your community, in your neighborhood, your community, where the people around you see, and you're not this uh, light that's hidden under a bushel, like the old little children's song. No, it's a light that's shining forth and bringing about change and making change. And and with the post millennial view that we'll, we'll get into more is that we believe that. Before the, the consummation, when Christ returns at his second coming, the world will be more and more Christians. Um, yeah. We'll get into more of that. I just kind of yeah. setting the stage here because this is important for us to, to understand. But I also think that no one would say, regardless of their position, that the gospel doesn't change individuals right. and the gospel doesn't bring about life change that then impacts a community. Because if we if we don't believe that it the, the gospel actually changes us, then do we actually believe the gospel? Has it changed us? Has it affected us? Maybe we need to ask ourselves some questions, you know, and examine, right? Um, anything you want to add there? And we'll kind of, from there, we'll get into maybe the position you held and how you came to this position. Yeah, let's get into it, brother. Okay. So, so obviously we were talking a little bit before the program 
I myself kind of grew up in a dispensational kind of background, although not really knowing that's what it was. Never really heard it spoken about when I was a kid growing up in Sunday school. It wasn't talked about. Um, it wasn't until later I was adult, actually a genuine believer, came to the Lord at 32. That's when I kind of had a, a conversation or my pastor had mentioned something and it caused me to study it out. And I went from holding to kind of just being brought up in a dispensational system. Not really, um, I, I can't say I was really like definitive. That's what I would defend. But I did see the Left Behind series. I, I did kind of just take that as the position. But when I studied, I went from that to an all-mill position. That's kind of where I was for a very long time. Uh, and then moving into the dispensational, or the, not dispensational, but into the post-millennial view. So how about yourself there, Pastor Edwin? Yeah, so I was, I wrote down in my notes, I was uh, born a dispensationalist. Uh, then I then I grew into an amillennialist and then finally landed at postmillennialist. And I think, you know, I think this is something that's common. And the reason why I say born into dispensationalism is usually, mm -hmm. and this isn't always the case, but typically when you become a Christian, you're, 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 you go to a church that's faithful, right? For the most part, just teaching the word, preaching the word. And for the most part, the default position is, you know, dispensationalism. It's almost mm -hmm. the the air we breathe uh, in, in our theological time frame in this the, the, the past couple hundred years. So uh, yeah, I, I went to this Pentecostal church twenty years ago, and and they were teaching uh, dispensationalism, but not really just outrightly. They just by default taught this, and it was almost it was almost. Um, the culture of the theological landscape, you know, things mm -hmm. are getting worse. They're going to get worse. Uh, they didn't lay out, you know, the, 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 the exact doctrine, but they laid it out in practice. Uh, and then I get, I got, I came to the point where I'm reading my Bible more, I'm studying and I, I see the, the, the problems with premillennialism. Uh, so I, I can't, I couldn't be that. Uh, but then I, I thought, well, amillennialism is like a nice, position in the middle it's it's not this or it's not that and at the time i really didn't even know about post-millennialism it wasn't until i went to bible college and i had those those debates those conversations with people and i started reading my bible more uh started studying more uh and started becoming more familiar with the the various views mm -hmm. and it just as i studied post-millennialism i said man this this I believe this position brings God the most glory. Mm. Uh, I, I believe it, it, it. it's consistent with the whole of scripture. I believe it's consistent with uh, extra biblical information uh, pertaining to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and, and the more I study post-millennialism, cause I, I'm still growing and learning, but the more I learn, the more, um, uh, you know, cemented I am in that position. It's just, right. I, I just, you can't not see it once you see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, as I was mentioning beforehand, how I kind of went from a dispensational view that I was kind of just, as you mentioned, born into or kind of you're kind of in when you go to most of these churches, um, because that's kind of the, the predominant view that was held for the last couple hundred years. Right. And so a lot of churches present that. And then I went to an amillennial position. And I think I've grown in maturity since then. So what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to be offensive. Right. I do believe there are good, godly brothers and sisters who are dispensational. Okay. Absolutely. But at the time when I started studying it out, being somebody who was in the military and I was overseas in other countries where Christianity is not accepted, 
you know, not as a Christian, I wasn't there, but I've seen these things. When I started studying out, I thought to myself, this is kind of an arrogant American westernized position, this dispensational view, that before it gets bad, God's going to take us out of here, mainly in America and in the West, right? Not in these other countries where I'm, I'm seeing people be persecuted because they're not of the same ethnic background as their enemies in this country when I was in Kosovo or when I was in Iraq, right? And so you're, you're seeing this. And not to make it experiential, because experience doesn't always dictate truth, but we do have experiences. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, only in America do, do we think that we're just going to be taken out of here and not suffer. But our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering. And that was one of the things I couldn't shake at the time, because I kind of felt like it was an arrogant American westernized position. Now, again, I say that because I do love my brothers and sisters who are dispensational. I think they love the Lord. They're, they want to be faithful to God's word. Um, but that's kind of how I was seeing that at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you triggered my memory. I think, uh, I think maybe the, the one person who had the most influence uh, in, in my theology at this time was uh, Hank Hanegraaff. Mm -hmm. uh, Hank Hanegraaff was a preterist. Uh, but he would he, he would never uh, confess to it. But he was a preterist, and uh, he, he would definitely never adhere to postmillennialism um, in 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 word. But he he definitely had all the tenets of it in in his theology. And and you know Hank has gone a different direction since right. then. But he was extremely helpful for me in those early years of of learning and understanding the difference between premillennial and amill mm -hmm. and postmillennial. So. Um, but yeah, man, I think I think there there's a lot of, you know, one of the things that Hank said that really helped me at the time was, you know, th what about the Palestinian Christians in Israel? Like, what what about mm -hmm. them? Because the, the idea is, well, Israel has to have their land, and so so here you're going to have Palestinian Christians uprooted because you have to have the ethnic people of God in their land, and so at what cost, right? Uh, so, so that was something that really triggered my thinking during that mm -hmm. stage that was really helpful to me. Yeah. And, and as you bring that up, we won't get into it here tonight because that's a whole nother discussion. But the, the type of theology that you bring to the text, because honestly, we all have presuppositions. So we bring theology to the text. We all do. Um, we have biases. We all, we all do that. But our desire is to let the text speak for itself and interpret our understanding of that theological positions rather than imposing that theological position on the text, right? But we can't deny that we all have presuppositions. And, and as you were speaking there about these, the, the, the theology and kind of seeing that uh, and the people of Israel being Christian Palestine or Palestinian, Palestinian Christians, um, it comes down to an understanding of you get covenant theology and then you have a dispensational theology. And then you also have new covenant theology and, and whatnot. But where you're seeing that there really is there two people of God and is this geopolitical land uh, a necessity after, you know, the Christianity comes in Christ comes uh, and establishes this new covenant, or is this something bigger? And I think we see in uh, Ephesians, I think we, we look at Galatians, I'm thinking of Galatians, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave, nor free. They're, they're one. The, these two, this wall of hostility that we read about in Ephesians has been broken down. It's one people of God that's yes. of every tribe and tongue. And so therefore that does play a, posi a, a, a part in how you view then this when it comes to eschatology. Mm 
Because if you're viewing that there's still something for the nation of Israel as a people, um, and I and I think as post-millennialists, we would also agree, Romans 11, I think that there's going to be a massive revival of Jews that come to Christ. But I'm saying as a polit- geopolitical nation, then then you're you're separating the church and the Israelite people. What I think we see in Scripture saying, no, this is one people of God. Yes. Now, but that will have an impact on how you then view the rest of this the Scriptures. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think we're all we're all bringing something into the text, and we should all examine those presuppositions. And you know, to your point earlier about sola scriptura. You know, there there are other authorities, but the word of God is our final authority. Mm-hmm. And so we test our presuppositions, our, you know, um, traditions, our experiences, our feelings, all that. We test it in light of scripture because some people, man, they they are sure that their position is true because it has to be true. And mm-hmm. and that's just that's not sound reasoning. And, it, it, you know, are the arbitrary between uh what is true and what isn't isn't based on our feelings or isn't based on what we think would be the best thought according to us. It's what God has said. And sometimes what God says doesn't align with how we feel or what we were taught or what we think should be the case. So we should always examine Mm -hmm. our presuppositions in light of scripture. And, and, And everyone would say that, right? But all of us fall prey to that at one point or another. So we should always be humble to let God speak and and say, Lord, speak and 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 I will obey in light of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Amen, brother. Because that's that's one of the things I think that over time, like they talk about cage stage Calvinism or yeah. cage stage evangelism. When I was getting into evangelism, there was a lot of guys, myself included, looking around saying, "Why isn't anybody evangelizing? Right, right, right. There must be, nobody believes this. Right. There's nobody on the streets." And then you run into people and you're like, there are people on the streets. There right. are people evangelizing just because they're not on the street, street preaching. There are people in churches that are sharing the gospel, passing out a track. They're, they're, they're evangelizing. They're being a witness. But you think you're the only one doing it. And you get that Elijah complex, right? Yes. Um, and then when it comes to Calvinism, you come into Reformed theology and you think, how come you don't see this? And you're going around and there's this lack of maturity. Uh, and it does happen with eschatology as well. Um, We get kind of so set in maybe what we've been taught uh, and we don't challenge it because this preacher was telling me these things and I trusted this preacher. How could he be lying to me? And I don't think they were lying. I think they believe the position, many of who, many of which believe the positions that they're teaching. Um, And I, I honestly respect that. I I had my, my, my previous pastor was uh, not dispensational. He he did believe that there's one people of God, but kind of held to a dispensational pre-trib premillennial view. Right. And I respected that he would try to uh, present his view from the scripture, not, well, this is what I've always believed. This is what I've always told. Right now we disagreed on some of those texts, but I respect the fact that they're trying to bring the scripture and say, well, here's why I believe this. Here's why I stand on this position. And that, that is important that we should always do that. As you said, solo scriptura, um, not that we don't learn from other things. We're not solo scriptura, but we, we definitely can learn but ultimately the scripture is our final authority. And so speaking on the scriptures, why don't you go ahead and, and cause you mentioned some earlier, but give some scripture references because this is where it usually comes down to. Um, and we'll talk about some of the, the pushbacks and things that we get uh, for this position uh, a little later, but what are some scriptural support that we see? Cause I, I like you um, have, when I've come to this position, I see it so much more clearly in scripture. 
Uh, and I think that that is because in this world, we see things through a dim veil, like a veil dimly. And even though we're in Christ, our eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, but there's so much we can glean and learn from the scriptures. And so we spend our time, we should spend our time studying, reading it, meditating upon it and learning. But when I've come to this view, I can't not see it now. When I'm reading passages in the Old Testament, I'm like, oh, there, there it is. There's that post-millennial view. Um, and I'm right. sure an amillennialist or a uh, historic pre-mill uh, or a, uh, a dispensationalist would say the same thing. So what are some of those scriptures, though, that we can look to to say, this is why I'm uh, affirming this position? Yeah. Uh, one thing I think is important to note is that for a while, uh, Amel and Postmill were very similar. Mm -hmm. I think up until most recently with the Radical Two Kingdom, um, the, the distinction between the, uh, the earthly realm and the spiritual heavenly realm, um, up until that point, they were very, they were very similar. And so you have people who say, well, uh, RC Sproul was an Amil. No, I think he was a post mill. It's because they're, they're very similar. He was definitely a partial preterist. Uh, but you have other, other individuals throughout church history. Um, who, if you flip a coin, they're mm -hmm. Amil, they're post mill, really depending on a couple nuances right. here and there. So there, there are a lot of similarities between those two positions. Uh, but but man, there's so much. I'll, I'll just point out ones really, man, that are like my hallmark. Uh, for for one, Psalm one ten one. Um, it says, "The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Mm -hmm. So so, this is speaking about Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, again, this is Psalm one ten. So this is the Psalms. But what what. What the psalmist is anticipating is the son's mediatorial kingship, his his position in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the father. And the father is saying, sit at my right hand for how long? How long, am, how long is the son sitting at this power of, of, of um, mediatorial kingship until mm -hmm. he makes his enemies a footstool? Okay, so, so you mm -hmm. have that. And this passage is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Some have said that this is the uh, the, the the New Testament writer's favorite verse. Uh, it's quoted in uh, Acts chapter two, along with uh, Joel chapter two, mm -hmm. and 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 so you you really pull this thread back, man, and you see that the apostles and the writers of the New Testament believed that Christ was ruling and reigning from heaven. And they were given the keys of the kingdom, which is the gospel, and they were to go forth and to bring you to my next verse, make disciples of the nations. We have this in the mm -hmm. Great Commission, Matthew 28. I'll go there just to read it. Um, Matthew chapter 28, 18 and following, it says, um, uh, I'll start at I'll start at verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And this is important to note, just even that there's 11 disciples Mm -hmm. So, so these disciples are called to do an impossible task that mm -hmm. is possible because we see here in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples of the nations. Uh, I always make this point. Go, go make disciples in some nations. No, he's saying go make disciples of all nations. So all the nations will be discipled to the 11. He's saying this, you mm -hmm. know, 
Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So, so Christ is going to be with his disciples mm -hmm. as they do what he commissioned them to do, uh, which is to go make disciples of all nations. And they're to teach people of scripture. So this mm -hmm. isn't just saving souls, right? right? And again, I think this is one of the objections that people have is, uh, I don't know if you, if you saw the the uh, the panel I was on, one of the pastors said, so you believe that as a post-millennialist, you're going to go and change the world. And it was like a trick question. And mm -hmm. I said, no, I don't believe that. I believe that as a Christian, I have the sword of the spirit in the gospel and I'm called to proclaim it. And God is the one who right. changes the hearts of men. And he will see to it that these promises are upheld. So this isn't by force. This isn't by right. you know, uh, by me trying to sway people's conscience. It's the same way he saved me and you is the same way, by the way, is a supernatural work of God. Mm -hmm. Right. And that in that same way he did that in me, he promises to do and the, throughout the world, and that doesn't mean universalism. Not everyone right, right. is going to be a Christian. Uh, even when Christ returns and the world is Christianized, that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be sin. There isn't going to be suffering. Right, right. There aren't going to be unbelievers among us. Of course there will be. Um, mm -hmm. the, the eternal state is the final state, and that will take place when Christ returns. Um, but the other verse, man, uh, well, before you, before you get to another verse, yep. um, I, I find that it's very fascinating, right? I posted uh, a few days ago, well, actually five days ago, it tells me on Facebook, um, an excerpt from a sermon from John MacArthur, who is dispensational. He would probably say leaky dispensational, maybe moves a little bit more towards a covenant theology, but still makes that distinction between Israel and the church. Yep. But he, he posted in this sermon. Um, it was it was titled, and it was an excerpt from the sermon that I took. It said, Men Who Turned the World Upside Down. So even our dispensationalist brothers and sisters realize and understand that the gospel and these men, because we do believe in means, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's what changes the hearts of individuals. But God uses means. So he uses his people to go and proclaim the gospel. So this means. And he has here, he says, here were two people of whom the world said they've turned the, turned us upside down. But if you think that's amazing, get this. They've only been in one to one town, Philippi, in Europe. And already uh, through the events of one few days, sorry, I'm trying to read it from the side. In one town, the world is convinced these men are turning it upside down. And the rumor has drifted all the way to Thessalonica, uh, which is over 100 miles away. When you turn the world upside down in your lifetime, that's going some. And I think somewhere, I think is what it meant to say, but I'm taking the expert excerpt. It says, when the world says, uh, when the world says you're turning it upside down, you've only been around a few weeks. That's really going somewhere, right? This is just to your point, like these 11 men, they're turning the world upside down. Um, I think there's that passage where it talks about, and I think our, our charismatic brothers and sisters will take this passage where it says, Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, be cast down into the sea, and they take that and say, well, you can make all these, you know, name it and claim it. Well, that's not what it's referring to. If you understand what this mountain is, this is the Roman Empire crumbling. This is this, this governmental uh, power that these 11 men turned upside down and it crumbled. Right. But go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and this is what Daniel's vision was about. Right. Mm -hmm. There's this there's this small stone that's going to 
crush you know the other ones and and mm -hmm. and that's what the that that's the church victorious right yeah. again it's it's how how by the power of the spirit according through the word of god so so you living an ordinary christian life has a supernatural effect because mm -hmm. you are salt and light you are a city uh, you you are a, a light right that is set upon the hill and it is to shine and and that was really the commission or the call for the Israelite in the old in the old covenant, uh, they 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 too were to go and be a light to the nations and and call men to to trust into Yahweh and see man, look how how beautiful God's law is. Look mm -hmm. at look at how He has a set apart people that are blessed by Him by way of their obedience in His in His law word, and that's that is what is to be the case in our lives. And and the distinction now in the new covenant is that. Uh, we we are new creations in Christ, right? There's a new covenant, and so the 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 um, the foreshadowing of that in the old covenant is fully actualized now in the new covenant, and the fullness of Christ's presence and blessing and uh, power goes before us, and and now and, and those are through ordinary means, right? Mm -hmm. Walk in the Spirit. Do not right. fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Children, obey your, your parents and the Lord. These are ordinary means that God uses for, for the gospel to go forward and change the hearts of individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I wanted to read this one more passage. And there's more, I think, of Psalm 2. Son, ask of me mm -hmm. and I will give you the nations. The nations, right. You know, Um and so you see, you see that in Psalm two, you see that Psalm one ten, you see that in the Great Commission and Matthew twenty eight. But then we have this passage here in First Corinthians fifteen. Mm. And again, this isn't cherry picking, right. because uh, when you look at the context of all these verses, and and really, this is something I mentioned to people. God doesn't have views; we have views, right? Uh, and, and we have views because we're limited uh, right, right. In, in, in our understanding, and we bring in presuppositions. But God doesn't have views. God isn't like, mm, that's interesting. I'm millennialism. Mm, that's interesting. Good point. Didn't think of that. God has a view, right? God has a decree. God has a plan. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at these positions and you're wrestling with, man, which one is it? Ah, I forget it. I'll just be a pan millennialist, you know? And it's like, no, I, I get it. You know, it, sure, it can be overwhelming, right. but but theology matters. And, and that includes mm -hmm. eschatology. And so what you believe is going to determine consciously or subconsciously on how you live your life. If you mm -hmm. think you're going to be raptured any second from now, then, then why plant a tree, right? Like then, 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 then why do anything that goes beyond the moment? Right. And, and people don't live that way because if they're in Christ, they have the spirit of God and mm -hmm. the spirit of God won't let you live that way. Right. Um, Amen. But, but this passage is 1 Corinthians. It says, and, and, and again, I would encourage listeners to read the whole context. I don't want to just take verses to, to make my point, but um, we can start here in verse, um, let's start in verse, I'll start at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, and again, this is in light of the resurrection, mm -hmm. right? So so thinking thinking about the resurrection, he says, but, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God 
uh, when the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So, so Christ is going to hand the kingdom over, as it were, to God the Father after he destroys every rule and every authority and every power. Verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, ask yourself the question, does this, because again, when we talk about hermeneutics, um, you know, our, the our theology needs to, uh, there's one message, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's tentacles in that message. There's extensions to that, but, but the, the, but there's the message of this, this, this victorious God. And so when you read passages like this, do they contradict the positions that are offered up in the premillennial, uh, uh, framework? Um, do they, do they, do they coincide with dispensationalism? Uh, you know, and, and and do they coincide with amillennialism or postmillennialism? And you have to ask yourself these questions because you you know the script and, and where you see an apparent contradiction, we got to do the hard work and we got to ask the hard questions. But there are there isn't going to be a contradiction in God's theology in God's mm -hmm. uh, uh, presentation uh, to, to 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 what the, the end of time will be. And in this passage, man, is really. Uh, really powerful because Paul is really giving an eschatological timeline. He's giving you an order. And so, you know, some people will say, you know, I, I have one brother. He'll, he'll tell me, well, tell me how this is true. If Jesus in the gospel says that uh, many uh, narrow is the way and few mm -hmm. that find it. And it's like, okay, right, right. Oh, hold on time out. Jesus <sighs> isn't giving an eschatological uh great uh, uh um, understanding with that verse so so we're dealing with two different time frames here and jesus is speaking to the religious leaders so if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about the religious leaders then then we can shift gears there but we can't say that 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 completely contradicts what paul said because now there's confusion in the word of god mm -hmm. and, and that isn't the case so I, I would just say for all of us man that we know this hermeneutics one on one, right? Context determines the meaning. Uh, uh, the context defines words. Sometimes a word or concept is used in one area of scripture, and it is it is uh, consistent. But but also sometimes there's uh, little little nuances or little tweaks, right? And and one of those. Sorry, I'm going on, but no, no. Um, the 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 Mount uh, uh, Zion. When you when you look at the Mount of Zion. That, that phraseology uh, throughout scripture, it morphs and it broadens. Mm. So there's right. there's a location that we understand in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, and that is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But but that location, it, it, it grows into something that's beyond just the literal location of Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And, and this makes sense because Revelation <clears throat> is progressive. It mm -hmm. isn't just this, uh, you know, uh, you know, you have the, the whole story in, in, in its fullness right there in Genesis. Now, there, there's, you know, obviously the Proto-Evangelion, but we see the gospel in seed version there. Uh, but there's a progressive revelation. So these writers are, are receiving information. 
via the Holy Spirit, via revelation. And they, they, they're working with information that was given before them, but they're also, uh, by way of revelation, getting information that's progressively moving the ball forward to what we have now as the whole of Scripture in the 66 book. So that would I'll stop there and see if you have any thoughts or comments on yeah. that. Yeah. No, there's a lot there. There's a lot, right? No, and I think where yeah, I think where you're 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 looking there, I think it's so important because scripture, if we let scripture interpret scripture, yes, I believe, as do you, that this is the view that you're gonna come to, right? Because you mentioned Psalm 1101, right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So we have to ask the question: is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father? Yes. The majority of people, I think, would say, yes, he is. Uh, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And as you just read there in Corinthians chapter 15, where it talks about the that which is most important, this gospel message goes into the resurrection, and it says that he must reign until all his enemies are made a footstool. So we see that from Psalm 110. We know he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to reign until all his enemies are made his footstool. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. And then what does he do? He takes the kingdom and he turns it over to the father. Right. That I, I don't I don't see how you can really get around that passage. If you just let it speak for what it's saying there in conjunction with the rest of Scripture, that, as you said, it talks about um, this small seed that just grows and grows and grows. All right. It talks about the leaven, that it just grows into this multitude. You mentioned um, the passage where in Matthew 7, it talks about broad is the way that leads to destruction, yeah. narrow is the way that leads to life, and few find it. There's many on this broad path, but few find it. And that is an objection that people use. But I just came to my mind, I'm thinking of Revelation chapter 7, and it says in verse 9, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. That doesn't sound like few. That sounds like many. So the context, again, the context, uh, it, it, it speaks for itself. You know what I mean? And Absolutely. then I also think of when you mentioned Abraham or I, when you was talking, I, I was thinking of Abraham with um, he's promised this land, yeah. right? But in Hebrews, what does it say that this promise? It's the world, yep. right? And I've actually, the more I've studied this, because I used to take that hard Calvinistic view of, well, John 3, 16, it doesn't mean world in, in the whole uh, entire world. But I've kind of the more that I've kind of studied this out and looked at it, Christ is redeeming the world as well. Not every person will be saved, but it's this restoration. Even in, in I, I've been listening a lot to creation stuff lately because I've been dealing a lot with atheists. And they'll say, even though they don't take a postmillennial view, some of these creation teachers will say that God created the world, sin came in, and then we're in this restor restoration period. And so it's this new creation. Things are being made new. Right. And so when you think about that, you're just like, man, if you take all these passages and there's so many more, like you said, yes. it just I don't see how we can get around that. Yeah, man, it's a it's a glorious truth. And and really, this this is again. God is the one who does this. We, we at the end of time, when when we all finally understand that postmillennialism was the right position <laughs> at the end of time, when we see this. Um, when we see God and we look back, we'll say, wow, God, you did that, right? You, you use means to accomplish your end, but you did that. And, and, and this is, this is what these glorious truths 
comfort us with and remind us by remind us of of God's sovereign plan and decree for the for the son to uh you know receive this reward and and for him to give it to his father and that is the nations as we see mm. consistently throughout the scriptures yeah amen amen and there there are many many passages that we would use and again sure. uh, to be fair our our amillennialist brothers and sisters our dispensational brothers sisters historic pre-mill guys would have scriptures as well Sure. But I think what we ultimately want to do is look to the scriptures and see, are we being consistent with the text or are we reading in our theology on the text? And we can be guilty of that as well in, in many areas. Um, but we, we definitely want, excuse me, to look at the scriptures as a whole and see, is this what we're seeing? Because as you mentioned, the, the, the proto-evangelion, right? The, the, the first mention of the gospel, um, this is this promise that God's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And even when, when I, I think of when he's before Pilate and Pilate, Pilate asks him about his kingdom, um, this is one of the things we'll get into some objections, but this is one of the things I think that comes is people will say, well, um, it has to be this earthly kingdom that he sits upon this earthly throne, right? But Christ says his kingdom is not of this world. If it was, we would fight like that. But my kingdom's not coming in that same way. Right. He's changing the hearts of people, which is then affecting and bringing change in the communities in which they live. Right. And that's what that's what Judas and, and really all the disciples, they were anticipating. Right. They were anticipating this this earthly kingdom to come right here, right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they 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 didn't fully grasp um, the nature of the kingdom. So so Christ brings it. Uh, you know, Christ comes on the scene, man, and demons are afraid of him, you know? Mm. Um, and, and, and so he, they're excited, they're encouraged, you know, they, they're fighting at one point about who's going to sit next to him in the kingdom. And, and Jesus is like, you don't get it. Uh, right. the, the, king, the kingdom was present in, in, a, in a small version, uh, but the kingdom was going to be fully realized when Christ ascended. And so, so in order for him to ascend, the second person of the Trinity has to die, has to be killed by the hands of wicked men. And by the way, in doing so, he's fulfilling the scripture that mm -hmm. many of the prophets of old were, were, were talking about, that they saw through a glass dimly, right? And, and that they were speaking about. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the God, God's ways truly are not our ways, you know? And, and I think that's one of the things about post-millennialism, post man, that really blows my mind and humbles me because I think, man, I, some, sometimes, man, if I could be honest, and this isn't the case as much anymore, but it really was several years ago where I almost felt bashful and ashamed and, and almost hesitant to say <laughs> that, that Christ was going to Christianize the world, right? That just mm -hmm. sounds bombastic. That sounds arrogant. That sounds prideful. And and and, and it would be if, if it was made up and or if it was like i thought it was man's doing but but really man is humbling because it's god's doing right god 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 how how are you going to uh you look at man I, I, you look at hoods and you look at nations and you look at all these different places that that the worst of evils take place and you think man god how are you going to christianize these areas and and it's the same way he always does it 
by work of the Spirit of God. It's a supernatural work of God. The same way he raised us who were dead in sin and trespasses, he raised us from the dead. So he will do that by virtue of the sword of the Spirit. And, and one more thing, brother, just, just, you know, there really are two options, right? The two options are this, Psalm 2, kiss the son or perish. Right. And, and those are the two options. Right? God, who is the warrior, equips his people as ambassadors to go forward and proclaim a message. And the message is kiss the son or perish. He's good. He's lovely. He's a savior. He can forgive the worst of sinners. Repent. Call on him. Believe in the gospel. Oh, you're not going to? Then these are the judgments that God, who sits on the throne, will bring on evildoers and on the wicked. And he will cut them off. And so uh, how is God going to do that? I don't know all the ins and outs other than the promises he gives us. But we can know for certain that he will because he has decreed it. Amen. Amen. Now, there's a question here. Um, I, I think you can see it. Read it down below. Um, I'm not 100% sure um, how he's asking with this Amil postmill for preterist. I think in the beginning I mentioned about the different views and the way in which we interpret. So an idealist, most amillennialists would hold to an idealist position. But even as a amillennialist, before I came to a postmill position, I did hold to a preterist view, a partial preterist view. Right. I actually even have a book back here. I can't think of the name of it right off the top of my head, but it was an amillennial uh, partial preterist view book. Right. From an amillennialist. Um, and I'd have to grab it. But but there I'm not sure if, what he's asking on that part. But when it comes to the postmillennial with a literal thousand year reign, I was actually just talking to my wife about this before the program. There are some postmillennialists who believe in a literal thousand years where it will come to a point where then from a thousand years, it'll just go from there. I myself hold to it being a period of time. Um, and, and I think you're going to find with amillennialists it being a period of time, many postmillennialists it being a period of time. But there are nuances within it, even differences between Brothers that are post-millennial, brothers that are amillennial uh, in their position, they're going to have some nuances or some differences in, in how they interpret those things. I think maybe that's how he was asking the question. Hopefully I, I did justice to that. I don't know if you want to give it a crack. Yeah, so the amillennial, I wrote some notes down here. The amillennialists will say that the kingdom is spiritual in nature, right? So Christ is ruling through the church and in, in our hearts, over our hearts. Uh, but they they typically believe that things are like the premillennialists. They, they they typically believe that things are progressively getting worse. So that that's that's where they typically go with that. So Christ rules now in the hearts of believers. So it's this spiritual ruling. Um, the the thousand years they believe in Revelation twenty is not a literal millennium, and I would agree with that. Um, uh, but rather it refers to a period of time in the church age. Uh, they believe that Christ will return to earth at the end of the church age. When he returns, there will be one resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. Uh, then eternally, eternity will begin. So there's there's similarity there. The difference would be uh, between Amil and Postmill is we would say that the kingdom is now, but and Christ reigns in the hearts of believers and is now ruling the nations. And that would be mm -hmm. the distinction. So so Christ has this rod of iron and he's ruling from heaven right now all the nations right remember ask and i will give you the nations right mm -hmm. and 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 we see christ uh says all authority in heaven right. and on earth has been given to me so so all the nations are his right and he's ruling all the nations right now 
Uh, and so th that, that would be the distinction. Our millennialism says it's a spiritual kingdom that's ruling in our hearts. Uh, Post-millennialism would say yes and amen, but not just that. It goes beyond that, that there's a physical aspect. And that's where we can agree uh, with a tenant of premillennialism. See, premillennialism believes that the kingdom has an earthly effect. And we would agree on, with them on that, that the kingdom does have an earthly effect. Uh, we would say that it isn't like a big bang. It doesn't just happen, you know, r right at the end when things progressively get worse and then Christ will, bam, come back and make everything better. We believe that the kingdom that is now is progressively growing, uh, you know, from this mustard seed into uh, into this big uh, olive tree. It's growing, uh, but it's progressively growing. Uh, but 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 it's but it's not just spiritual. There's also earthly and physical ramifications as well. So it's both and for the post-millennialist. Yeah. And I, I also, you think about the Lord's prayer, right? right? Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on oh, earth Christ. as it is in heaven. Yes. Amen. So he's teaching his disciples to pray this. Um, and, and as we would say, obviously, because Christ, this is his view that he's going to yes. reign and rule over the nations, whether they they want to bow the knee today, uh, or or they'll bow the knee when every knee bows, um, yes. when he does come in his final judgment at the consummation of all things, and so and, that's 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 important to to consider as well. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And even when you read uh, a passage like Hebrews eleven, right, um, and you look at the the Hall of Faith, it looks like uh, it looks like those people in real time were were the minority, right? Uh, they look like they were. They died in vain. They died for nothing. But but no, that, that isn't the case, right? Um, the Lord of hosts went before them in battle. Uh, and 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 the Lord of hosts uh used those those um those those deaths and that blood for the seed to grow the church and 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 for 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 God's word to go forth, whether in salvation, uh for 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 people and for nations or in judgment. Uh, for people or for nations. So, uh, and, and so to that point, even even for those of us who are post-millennialists, that doesn't mean that we uh, sit back. That doesn't mean that we don't live uh, lives that 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 are intentional. Uh, but but all the more in light of in light of the already and not yet, uh, we we are to uh, live a life that is seeking to to please the Lord uh, and proclaim the gospel and make disciples and and. And do that by faith and not just stand back and expect, in, in the words of MacArthur, to waltz into the kingdom, you know? Right, right. And Larry here says, I think some of our challenging our challenge with ruling is we think, uh, think there is a full authority and power over a nation or a kingdom. Uh, and I would say Christ does have that power over a nation and a kingdom. And I think you even see this picture, this type in the Old Testament, where when he judges the other nations, he doesn't judge them for the civil law that's given to Israel or the ceremonial laws, but he does judge them according to his moral law. Nineveh was wicked. He said, unless you repent, you're not Israelites. You're not my chosen people, but unless you repent, you're going to perish. We see that when he goes into the land of Canaan, he judges them because they violate his moral law. Right. So he's still sovereign over them. He still rules over them. Um, and the Bible says, as you mentioned, that he rules with an iron rod. But he does break the hearts of the hard hearted. He takes our heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. And therefore, that brings about a change in us. That brings about a change in our society around us. Or it should. It should. As you said, I think one of the dangers is we can't just say, oh, I'm post millennial. 
God's going to bring about this uh, Christianized world, and, and then we sit back and do nothing. Right. No, we still yeah. are responsible to be faithful to the call and go out and evangelize and go out and make differences in our community, not just give up and think, well, we're going to get raptured this week. That's not what we're, we're called to do. We're called to be faithful to what God has called us. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and I think another thing that's important to keep in mind is um, these ideas, the, the idea of uh, different spheres, right? So, so you have um, the civil government, the civil government has uh, they they have um, the sword that they've been given, and so there's a there's a calling for the civil government before God. So so what about um, the civil magistrate, right? What about um, in my in my town we have a, a homosexual mayor? Uh, what what happens when um, Eddie Sunquest is saved when he comes to faith in Christ? How how is he to govern? How is he mm -hmm. to to uh, to to walk in faithfulness uh, to his calling as the mayor of this town? Well, he is to look to God's word. He mm -hmm. is to rule uh, in his position according uh, to submission to his to, to being in submission to Christ's words over his life. He needs to be discipled, right? He needs to learn how to be a good mayor. He shouldn't quit being a mayor, and you know. Uh, to 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 go to seminary to be a pastor unless God calls him to that, because again, th that's where we get this spiritual and physical dynamic, right? Where it's like, okay, now that I'm in the faith, I need to do something spiritual. I need to go to Bible college. I need to study this. I need to study. And it's like, well, you need to be faithful where God has called you and where He's placed you. So so if, if He works in the civil magistrate realm, then be faithful as a civil magistrate in your calling under the submission of God. And, and so there's going to be these fears of life where God saves people and they're going to uh, honor God in those areas, right? He's going to save um, the doctor. He's going to save um, you, you name it. He's going to save people. And, and he does, and he's doing that. He's saving people in different spheres of life and their influence in those spheres are, are honoring and glorifying to God. All right. I don't know. Can you see this question here? Maybe you can yes. give this one a shot. Uh, the Israelites <clears throat> king was God and they rejected him. He was reigning over the Israelites. Why is Jesus's reigning over the world, not just reigning over all his people who are in all nations? Um, yeah, I think so. The Israelites, um, one, were uh, an adulterous people, right? Uh, it says most of them, most of them he he killed the first generation in the in the wilderness um they were not faithful to his covenant promise and yet um the the uh the, the promise didn't uh you can you put the question back up so i can see it yeah yep uh, but but the promise the promise uh was still upheld god still uh re remained faithful to his covenant that he would have a people for himself and so that line where christ was um uh, in was never snuffed out right it was always preserved so so yes israel had a king and they didn't want him they rejected him um he 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 was ruling over the israelites um and so th this part of the question i'm trying to get it says why is jesus reigning over the world not just reigning over all his people oh yeah because it's not what the great commission says um and and the the the, the nations that he um, that that will be discipled are going to be his people, right? So so go make disciples of all nations, 
th those are going to be his people, th those disciples. So uh, I don't know if that answers the question, unless you understand it differently. No, I, that's what I was trying to figure it out myself. Okay. Um, but as we're kind of running out of time, I do want to talk about some objections that people yes. have. Um, one of them, I think we did mention some of these, but one of them, I even used it myself um, because I didn't take the time to really understand the position, which I think as Christians, we should always do our best. I think it shows Christian maturity. I think it shows Christian love to be able to, and graciousness to be able to try to understand someone's position, not just straw man it. Cause I don't like that when we're evangelizing on the streets and people come up with their straw man arguments, but the same thing with brothers and sisters, we should even be more loving and gracious um, to, to give them the benefit of the doubt and hear what they're trying to say. But the, the idea comes up that what do you mean that's just going to get better and better and better and better. And we're going to have all these Christians uh, that are going to be in the world. And then we're, we're like ushering this in, bring, and you've already kind of alluded to this, but we're doing the work. Then we're turning it over to Christ when he comes back at his consummation. Yeah. So, so we're, we're just being faithful where God has called us. You know, we're, we're being faithful fathers, husbands, pastors, mothers, doctors, preachers, whatever it is that God has called you to. We're being faithful uh, and, 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 being transformed by the renewing of our minds, um, you know, growing in sanctification. And as we go about our lives, um, God is using us to be a light where we're at and also uh, causing us to, you know, prompting our hearts to share the gospel. And God's going to use that gospel to change people's hearts. Uh, and, and that is going to be progressive throughout history. Uh, and, and, and God has, and you say, well, how, well, how, well, how, well, well, look back, look at how God has done it thus far. Right. Uh, again, 11 disciples, 11 and brother, mm -hmm. just, just to, just to remind everyone, uh, that's a little over 2000 years and there's millions of Christians, millions of Christians in the past 2000 plus years from 11 to millions. And so, you know, how, how is God going to do it? He's going to do it the same way he's always done it. So I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want us to be discouraged and think, well, because it just seems unfathomable, then I can't believe it. It's a no, you should believe it because the scriptures teach it and trust God to do the impossible. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that means that you're not going to be here to see it. Right. If, if we're talking about uh, Paul, 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 in his time in the book of Colossians says that in that time in the, in the book of Colossians, that the, the, the known world was reached by the gospel at that time. You know, you have uh, the Ethiopian in Acts in the book of Acts, like the gospel has gone out uh, and, and, and it was the spirit of God who forced the disciples out of Jerusalem. Right. Uh, because they, they were staying in Jerusalem and, and, and they were forced out by way of persecution. So the gospel would go out. So yeah, man, how is God going to do it? Uh, he's going to do it according to his word and he's going to be faithful to keeping his word. So, yeah. And I think too, the, the, the thing that's often assumed is that it's just going to get better and better and better. And there's going to be no sin in the world, right? But there's going to be sin all the way to the consummation. There's going to be those who are still in rebellion against God. But what we're saying as post-millennialist is that 
we believe, and, and every single eschatology would say Christ is victorious in the end. So I don't want to straw man that and try to tell them, say that they wouldn't say he's victorious. But as the post-millennialist view is saying, not just at the end, at the consummation is he victorious, but he is bringing all of his enemies under subjection, under his foot. And yes, there will be some that are still uh, unbelievers at the end, but the majority of people are going to be saved. Because God has this promise. I think we we look at those passages. We we talked about it earlier, where there's many on a broad road, few that that on the on the on narrow road. And we think that that just means that there's always going to be more people in hell than there is in heaven. But no, I believe Christ is victorious. And and every single soul that he is uh uh ordained for, uh, and elected to be saved will be saved. And I think that's a great multitude, as it says in Romans or Revelation 7, a great multitude. Right. Amen. Uh, one of the other uh, um, objections I think we see is because there is so many passages. Okay, uh, this is one that that I I've received. And when you think about, is there so many passages in the Old Testament that we look to and we utilize them? One, it will come down to your interpretation. Some people believe the Old Testament isn't for us. You know, it's for Israel, and even some yeah. of the New Testament passages aren't for us, and so they're going to view that in the way that they see this. But when you look at Psalms 2, which was mentioned, Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 47, Psalm 72, Psalm 86, 9, right? There's a lot of these passages in the Psalms, and one of the arguments might be, well, it's the Psalms, right? It's, it's, it's songs, it's poetry. We can't, we can't take those passages and then try to apply them. But I would say those same individuals would use this, and I brought this up as a screen share here, they would use this, and hopefully you can see that somewhat. Yep, I can but see it. these are passages about messianic prophecies, all from the Psalms, right? So they would they would say this is literal. This is prophecies from the Psalms. So the argument may be, well, you're getting these uh, things from the Psalms that are talking about this uh, uh, nation. Let me just go to anything you want to say there. I'm going to go to this uh, Psalm 86:9 and read that one. So anything yeah, you want to say so, while I'm getting there? Uh, yeah, I, uh, one thing, it's funny, Mark asked this question because I pulled it up on, on my phone because I, I wanted to reference it. John 3, 16, right? So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Mm -hmm. See, that's, 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 that's what Christ Death, resurrection, and ascension accomplishes. It will ultimately accomplish salvation for the world. Not head for head, not every single individual. We don't believe in universalism, but the world will be Christianized. And again, this is consistent with the whole of Scripture. Yeah. All right. Let me pull that up because I missed that question that you just referenced to. Let's see, it was right here. Okay. Um, but Psalm 86, and this is why I said this, because a lot of times they'll say, well, it's in the Psalms. You know, this is poetry. Uh, this is songs. It's not, you know, something that we sometimes people would say you take literally, but the prophecies are there and they would take those literally, right? That Because they did come to pass. But it says in Psalm 86, verse nine, it says, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Now I read that. And, and I know sometimes with, with an amillennialist or a postmillennialist, they say you spiritualize things. I'm literally just reading that and saying, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, amen. Yeah, man. And, and, and again, this isn't just cherry picking a verse. 
This is this is literally the whole of scripture. The whole of scripture teaches mm -hmm. this. And we believe that this is going to take place. Again, you compare all these verses and you look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives you that eschatological mm -hmm. timeline. I mean, if you, if you, in my opinion, if you take a different position, right, let, let's say if Paul's giving an eschatological timeline, he says, this is what it's going to be like before the end takes place. And you hear all these other verses concerning the nation. You compare that with Psalm 110.1. You compare that with Psalm 2. And, and you say, well, th they're saying different things. Then, then you don't believe the scriptures are, are, the word of God, right? And I'm not saying if you're not a post-millennialist, you don't believe the scriptures are the word of God. But if you believe there's these gaping contradictions in the word of God, then, then you can't have a consistent hermeneutic and you can't have a consistent uh, uh, revelation from God. So I, I would just say, you know, we, 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 we just, we just feel uncomfortable with the idea that, that God is going to, to be victorious, we we we're uncomfortable with the idea that the Great Commission is really great. Like we 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 lessen the Great Commission, and we we ironically enough, people are the one who who uh, undermine it and spiritualize it, because uh, that's the other charge, man. You guys spiritualize, you guys use allegory, and it's like, like no, like we we, we want to use the language that the the writers of Scripture use, mm -hmm. and and it isn't always. Uh, literal and it's definitely not wooden literal right right yeah no absolutely absolutely all right um any other objections that you can think of uh one of them was the timothy one you know things are you know oh yeah, uh, let yeah. Me, let me pull it up. second timothy was it second timothy chapter three verses one through seven i'll pull it up here as well uh but again with passages like this um even even thessalonians great Great stuff there, man. Um, but yeah, godliness, uh, god, godlessness in the last days. And I'll just say this in short: um, when whenever you read these, the last days, it's not talking about the last day. It's not talking about um, the the end of time. Mm -hmm. When when the prophets of old talk about the last days, they're they're, they're talking about something that is going to take place in the first century. Uh, they're, they're talking about because this is the other thing as a preterist, and and, and this would be helpful. Um, I don't I don't believe that uh, I believe all all of the scriptures were were written prior to 70 A.D. I, right. I have the Book of Revelation being written um, prior to 70 A.D. So the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, you know you have in the Book of Hebrews the temple is still standing. Mm -hmm. uh, you have. Uh, 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 the writer of Hebrews warning them not to go back to the temple, right? Because that mm -hmm. old system is going to be done away with. In the book of Acts, people are selling their possessions because mm -hmm. the temple is not going to be there. So, so when you have these prophets of old talking about the last days, they're talking about the time coming up to the destruction of the temple, because that mm -hmm. is the religious fabric of this this uh, time that is going to be done away with. It is judgment on the first century because of their adultery in rejecting Christ and, and, you know, even freeing uh, Barabbas, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so this godliness passage here, you know, yeah. Okay. You know, people say, well, do you, you don't believe that, 
you know, people are going to be, uh, you know, brutal and not loving good and treacherous and reckless and swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having them. Oh, well, yeah, we, we still live in a we live in a sinful world. And so we're going to see uh, tenets of the fall uh, up until the return of Christ. But 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 that isn't what Paul is talking about. Paul isn't saying that things are going to get so, so, so bad, um, you know, that that that. Uh, and, and by the way, just. Real quick, that passage, um, people always point to. But look at look at verse. Uh, they, they never read verse eight, right? So they say, mm -hmm. "Always learning, never being able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth." Just as Janus and Jambres opposed mm -hmm. Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their father will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. What was the end of those two men? Right? And in light of all the evil that took place, what was their end? They they didn't kiss the sun, therefore mm -hmm. they perished. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So that's another passage. Yeah. So those are just some of the the um objections we often see. Another one I think is very, um, it's a very weak objection, but it is, I've had it used uh, on me as well is this idea that there is, you know, Bethel Redding would hold to a dominion theology, a seven mountain theology. And it's kind of used as it, it's a bad, it's really poor. If, if this is one you use, please stop. But they would say, well, because Bethel holds to this dominion view, you know, and look at Bethel, look at the hereticalness that is in Bethel, right? So that gives postmillennialism a bad name. But I would say that if that's the way you're going to argue, um, years ago, TBN had every false teacher on there. Who's the Hagee guy with blood moons yep. and all that? And it was a dispensational view. Are we going to say that dispensationalism is disqualified because there's people that uh, promote it that are heretics? I think that's a bad argument. Um, it's a small one, but it's often thrown out there. And I don't yeah. think that's the way we should argue. Yeah. And post-millennialism isn't promoting uh, the prosperity gospel. Right. Right. Like, like, like the seven kingdoms is, and it's a completely different structure that see, see, see their, their wishful thinking. We're going to the promises of God, uh, the prophecies of God, this, the word of God, the final revelation. So they're going off of wishful thinking and, you know, mustering up enough faith to believe that this will mm -hmm. be the case. Um, but, but we're, we're, we're going back to the scriptures and, and, and the final authority, which is the word of God. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So just to, to close it out here, cause we've kind of gone a little bit long. Um, but why don't you go ahead and maybe share with the listeners what should be, I know we've kind of, we've touched on it, but again, as we close it out, what should be, is this is an eschatologic, eschatological view of hope, Right. So how then should we live in light of it? Maybe you can end with that uh, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. Yeah, we should, we should, uh, it says first Corinthians uh, 10 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So we should, we should seek to live for the glory of God in every area of our lives. And um, when we do that, uh, the spirit of God is uh, using many means to grow us suffering, hardship, pain, joy, uh, all, all this, but but all of which is promised to conform us into the image of Christ. And and before 
um, you know, uh, or, or, or that the, the spirit of God will complete the work he started in us. So I, I would just encourage you uh, to uh, examine your life and see, uh, one, are you in Christ? If not, then the first things first, you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to you need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ, uh, knowing that Christ is the only one that lived the perfect life that you could never live, died the death that you deserve to die. He was buried and he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is interceding on behalf of the saints now in heaven as he rules with the rod of iron. So, so you should kiss the sun. You should turn from your sin and believe in him. Now, once you're a Christian, now you ask, how shall I then live? Right. What is what is God's word say uh, with how I should live in the area of personal purity and holiness? What does God's word say on how I should live in my vocation uh, as a cook or a father, as a husband, as a wife, whatever you fill in the blank and, and live for the glory of God in that area? And God will take that that mustard seed, that that small mm. um, offering that you give him. And like he did in the Gospels, when he is given two fish and five loaves, he multiplies it. He mm. uses it in ways that is jaw-dropping to everyone that is partaking of the sun, right? Everyone who's partaking of this meal. They look back and they go, wow. The disciples who knew they had insight, they saw him do that. They're like, wow, God did that. And that's exactly what God does. And he does it through his word. Uh, and the other thing I would say, I guess, in closing, man, is um, a, a major testimony uh, aside from living holy and living uh, a, a life that is pleasing to God is, uh, you know, being a part of a local church, mm. making sure that you are partaking of the means of grace that take place in communion, uh, in, in a community, but also partaking in the ordinances that God has given to the church. There's two of them. There's the Lord's table and there's also baptism. And so uh, you being a part of a local church is uh, uh, being a witness to your community, is being a witness uh, to your children in your home, and it is doing more work than 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 you could ever do in your own might and your own power by simple obedience to God's command. So that that would just be a ground level thing, man. Is uh, we don't progress the kingdom. Uh, uh, God God's kingdom is progressing, um, and and we are called to live in light of those realities by faith as we obey His word. Yeah, Amen, brother. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Edwin, for coming on the program and talking about this. Uh, eschatology of hope, uh, that post mill, you know, um, uh, it's been a great conversation to have with you. Um, and I hope that regardless of the eschatological position and view that you take, that you will let the scriptures be the determining factor and that you would examine these things, look at the scriptures and, and, and always be willing to go where the scriptures lead. Uh, don't be led by your presuppositions, uh, of this eschatological views, but be led by the scriptures. Uh, and may God bless you. And uh, until next time, God bless and good night.